You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. From the author of Taxi Driver comes Blue Collar, the story of three men who spend their whole lives working to catch up. There's going to be some changes, man, in the union, big changes. Everybody know what the plan is. The plant just shot for plantation. And I was on that picket line every day. That's right, man. I'm still paying the bills and the money out of bar to support my family. Who is it? Mr. Brown? Yes? Yeah, my name is Mr. Berg. I'm with the Eternal Revenue. I don't want none. But according to the hospital records, you, you, you claim six and you only have three. I couldn't have all my kids in the hospital, man, you know. Uh... Here, see, we have Sugar Ray Brown, you've got Gloria Brown, you've got O.J. Brown, Gail Sayers Brown, yeah. Jim Brown, Stevie Wonder Brown. Who's Stevie Wonder? I was gonna come by your house and see you, but I figured hey, maybe listen, to get man. Nobody comes near my house. Nobody I don't invite. And you know you should be done with that now. You have a nice schedule. This is company time, Bartoski. What are you telling me, man? That I'm gonna be doing the work. All three men. Let's move it, Zeke. You're dragging. You're always dragging the line. Well, the thing I don't understand is why you let the union rip you off as much as management. You know. Do my job. Can't nobody say no different. And I was my own man when I came to work here. I'm gonna be my own man when I leave. Get that safety all the time talking about. Keep man, that's all union. They ain't got nothing but one guard. Here's the safe. We'll talk to it later. Let's get it out of here. I kept the notebook. Why? I thought you threw all that stuff out. I hear you got something I want. We can change the union with this book, baby. Just leave me alone, man. I don't talk to no government agent. Yeah, we can't be seen with each other anymore. First of all, they know three guys did it. Two of them are black, one of them are white. I want no sense. Nobody. No way back. We got the wrong house. How do I protect my family? I'm the only one who can protect you or your family. American dream. If you're rich, you can buy it. If you're anything else, you've got to fight for it. Blue Collar. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me, of course, is the shop foreman, Mr. Mike White. Hey, cool! I'm on a podcast! And also this week, a lady tougher than Rosie the Riveter, Miss Maitland McDonough. I'm flexing my biceps as we speak. This week, we're looking at the 1978 film about the working man, Blue Collar, co-written and directed by Paul Schrader. It tells the tale of three men, played by Harvey Keitel, Richard Pryor, and Yafik Koto, working the line in our fair city of Detroit, dealing with factory work, the union, family, fraud, race, and more. By the way, we'll be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen Blue Collar, turn us off, go watch it, and come back, because, of course, we'll be waiting for you. Now, Maitland, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Blue Collar, and what did you think? I saw Blue Collar, actually, for the first time when it was a new film. Uh, I knew that it was by the guy who had written Taxi Driver, so I thought it was definitely something I wanted to see. I hadn't seen the Yakuza at that time, because I really wasn't interested in that kind of film. And I have to say, it made quite an impression on me. It was a movie that seemed to me to be an extremely honest and, and straightforward American movie about what it really is like to be a working-class, blue-collar worker. Uh, there was no kind of John Henry 
valorization of the working man, but also no sense that capitalism was the entire problem. It seemed to me a very straightforward and honest depiction, and it really it has stuck with me all these years. As for you, Mr. White? This was one of those that I rented at the video store, and I think that the marketing of the movie got me. Because I went in kind of like a lot of people did when they saw the poster for this with the kind of with every, what was it, which way is up type advertising of the two Richard Pryors and him being the star of the show and everything and coming in and it not being a Richard Pryor vehicle and it being these two other guys who at the time I don't think I really knew because I kind of grew up on Richard Pryor really and... I wasn't familiar with Yafet Koto at the time, and I wasn't familiar with this Harvey Keitel guy. And it's like I just kept wanting more, more Richard Pryor, and I wanted him to be funny, and he wasn't being funny, goddammit. So I didn't really like this the first time that I saw it. It took me a few years to finally realize what I had seen and that comedians could play different roles. And when I saw it later on, also probably a video rental, probably when I was working at Blockbuster enjoyed it a lot more. Yeah, I think the funniest thing Richard Pryor says in that movie is that flick my dick remark, and quite honestly, that's so bitter that it's not really funny. Right. As for me, I didn't really see it until, I don't know, uh, a couple of years ago when it was on Netflix streaming. I mean, I knew about it, I knew it was out there, and uh, just decided to pull it up and watch it and was really impressed with it because I think it had to do with the fact that I was now living away from my hometown and I grew up around guys like this. I mean, this is my dad's generation of uh, factory workers. It's like my uncle. When I watched it, it really kind of resonated with me. And on the watch that I just had in the past week of it for the show, it really kind of resonates with a lot of other things that have been in the culture lately in terms of discussions of uh, working and sort of making a living, and then also questions of uh, race privilege to a certain extent. And I think it's uh, quite radical in a way, considering uh, that period in which it was done. And it just screams of, like we talk about, Mike, uh, being a 70s film and all the reasons why I love 70s film. Yeah, it definitely is in that spot. Before we started recording, Maitland and I were talking a little bit about that. And just, it, this film for me, isn't as well-known as it should be. And it's got all of the right ingredients. You know, I talked about the three main people that are in it. Maitland mentioned the director, writer of it, and it is a very powerful film. But for some reason, it just, it's not one that kind of comes to the top of the list when you start talking about 70s movies. And I'm not exactly sure why that is. I think one of the reasons that is, frankly, is that it's, a movie that is a total downer on pretty much every level. It doesn't have any exciting kind of low-life aspect to it, a heist, a, a crime that changes people's lives, anything like that. It doesn't really have a redemptive quality to it. It doesn't feature characters who you know, try to stick it to the man and win in any respect because, frankly, everything they do comes back on them in completely the wrong way. None of these characters are bad guys. All of them have faults. One of them has been in jail. They have problems, certainly, but they're not bad guys. And yet every bad thing that can possibly happen to them does. So it's not the kind of movie I think that one can recommend as uh, this is a fun movie or this is a movie that puts its characters through the ringer, but it's okay at the end. It's an extremely downbeat look at the way life 
can really feed you into a meat grinder and send you out chopped meat on the other end. I also think that when there's movies that have like bad endings or downer endings or whatever, I mean, um, it's not a comedy in the traditional sense in which your characters win in the end. It seems like those are done in a much more sort of, um, I don't know how to say it, but sort of uh, cartoonish way. Because I've seen movies that have ended like on, on downer endings where like people die or something like that, but then they're done really kind of um, absurdist or there's some sort of like bizarre humor element to it. For example, I'm thinking of the movie like Very Bad Things. That whole film is handled in such a way that it's almost like a cartoon. I don't know. It's just like the way the tone is handled. And like you were saying in here, this is handled very sort of straight ahead. I mean, I get the feeling in a lot of ways as I was watching it, I'm like, this is this could be my uncle, this could be my dad, this is the experience that I heard growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in, in the suburbs of people working the factory line. I mean, this is just their day-to-day. And you get that grind of the factory. You get that whole idea of this is them day in, day out, and just some of the petty, I don't want to say petty, but the smaller grievances just build up and build up and build up. And it's like the whole idea of the guy with the drink machine that isn't working for him or Richard Pryor with the uh, locker that isn't working for him. And it's like, you know, here we are, we're hardworking guys. We expect to be able to get a cold drink or open our locker and we can't do it. And we're getting no support from the union. And to me, the union is such a major character in this film and it just is that whole like you can't fight city hall it feels like in this one you can't fight the union you cannot topple this major institution and that's another thing where these guys just you know either they're getting squashed like almost literally or they're just you know the spirits being crushed by the machine whether it be you know their day-to-day out there on the line or whether it be the politics of the union that's working behind the scenes and I think that this is a tone that, in a lot of ways, you you have to go back to the 1930s to see. I and mean, this is a movie that reminds me in a lot of ways of I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, because it has that same sense that once you've set your feet on a certain path, you're never going to be able to get onto a nicer path. You're just going to have to trudge down that road and take every piece of crap that's thrown at you and just keep your head down and try to keep on walking because it is not going to get better. And although there were many movies during the 70s that were quite grim and quite realistic in the way that they depicted a life where everything was going bad because the 70s were not a great time in America or pretty much any place else. They were not economically a great time. They were socially a difficult time. I think a lot of people just felt that their lives were suddenly going off track, and not only were they not going to get better, but they were only going to get worse. But there was a remarkable number of movies that were reflecting that. It was a downer decade. And it's interesting that you talk about the union playing that role. I almost see the union playing this kind of like friend, and yet the friend that wants to stab you in the back at the same time. I mean, because the guys have kind of come to realize that they're up against the the company anyway. They're up against the management. The management's going to push them to, to do the things that they want to do, and they have the union because the union's supposed to help them. But it just seems when you have the meeting and then you have the various other like side meetings that happen, that 
it's just another level of bureaucracy. And at times it's more frustrating than just dealing with the company because at least you know what the company wants. When you deal with the union, it's like, I'm your friend. I'm here to help you. But at the same time, it seems like they're getting screwed by their friend. Zeke, I knew we could count on you. You can't count on me, not for Saturday, man. I'm busy. I ain't handing out that shit. <laughs> All right, what is it now, Zeke? I want to talk about the union doing right by me, like you said. What is it now, Zeke? My locker door. Oh. oh. My locker's been busted for six months now, man, and the company ain't did shit to fix it. Now I have to stick my finger in some tiny asshole. I cut my finger, man, two weeks ago, and it ain't healed yet. Now I have to use ballpoint pens. I'm sticking them in there, and they keep breaking off. I done blew $20 in ballpoint pens. Hey, be reasonable, Zeke. Huh? Reasonable? Man, fix my bitch. What are you talking about reasonable? Six fucking months, Clarence. You're my union shop steward. You ain't doing shit. Talk to your union rep is a really cruel phrase in this movie. And all of them... Uh, Zeke, Jerry, and Smokey, Richard Pryor, Harvey Keitel, and Yafet Koto, they they all seem to just be making their own fate. You know, somebody talks about once you're on that path, you are on that path, and it just seems like they are digging their own graves throughout so much of this movie that it is really depressing as far as seeing where these guys are headed and them not only being unwilling to stop it, but unable to stop it. And they just continue to get deeper and deeper and deeper. And they, it seems like they make no good decisions throughout this. And of all the people that seem to kind of know what's happening, it seems like Smokey, the Yafet Koto character, seems to be the most wise when it comes to the way that the union is playing these guys off of each other and you know, manipulating them, but yet he's still with them when it comes to, you know, this heist and everything. And it's funny because I kind of forget the heist every once in a while that it's even there because it's there and then it's gone. And you would think like, okay, this is going to be a heist movie. And it is for about five minutes. And then it turns into another movie along the way. And I like that the, it has these kind of, kind of different beats to it as far as what I would think, this movie would be. I would think for a little bit, the union is screwing us. We're going to get the union. We're going to steal all this money. And then when they go in and find out that the union only has $600, then it turns into a whole different movie. I think it has a very film noir quality to it, to be honest. It's not a stylistic quality, but it is certainly a thematic quality because as with the characters in most of the great noir films, Every one of those guys is his own worst enemy, and every time he's faced with a choice, he makes the one that's going to make things worse. The other thing that kind of goes along with that is just you come to understand why they're trying to make the choice that, they're, that they make in terms of that heist and sort of how that eventually splinters off and, and causes all the discord by the time you get to the end, where you have these three guys who... You know, they're co-workers, and I would say decent friends to a certain extent, that by the end, one's dead and two want to kill each other. Oh, yeah. Some of those things that lead up to them making that decision to rob the union. I mean, the whole thing, there's a great scene where Richard Pryor is trying to explain to this guy who is there evaluating them from the IRS about how many kids he has, and he's lied about how many dependents he has, and he's trying to use the neighbor's kids to kind of convince this guy that he has more kids. I mean, it could be a comedy scene, and it is a funny scene, but yet 
ultimately it's depressing because the guy wants nothing to do with this. He just knows that Richard Pryor's character is lying, and he wants nothing to do with this. Come on in, Carolyn. She got the kids. Come on, bring them in. Look, you didn't have to go through this. I mean, this That's is not, right. uh, this not is, you know. Get the I checking must, off them names. No, I need the this certificates, is, Mr. This is Brown. Sonny, Gail, Sugar Ray. Uh, uh, what's your name? Your name? What's your name? What's your name? What's your name? Are you a girl or a boy? You see, they don't have names, Mr. Brown. I told Brown. them not to speak to strangers. No, I just, listen, I can't. You must I'll have certificates. Yeah, look, please, what, I'd like to get out. I'd like to get home myself. I'd like to get home. I mean, this is not right. Man, I These are home, not your children. I take home two ten a week, man. God damn. I got to pay for the lights, gas, clothes, food. Every fucking thing, man. I'm left with about 30 bucks after all the fucking bills are paid. Give me a break, will you, mister? Mr. Brown, there's nothing I can do. I work for nothing Uncle Sam. Can. Fuck Uncle Sam, man. You they give the fucking politicians a you, break. You Agnew and them don't pay shit. Uh, you, 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 the working man's got a pair of every goddamn Look, thing. You shouldn't say that about what, Uncle Sam. Oh, don't point at me, you motherfucker. Get out of my house. I'll pay the goddamn money. You bet you will, you pay it. Yeah, I know I will. You'll pay it, Mr. Brown. If I had the Navy and Marines behind me, I'd be a motherfucker too. But I think the most heartbreaking scene for me in the entire film is Harvey Keitel, who has a daughter in this movie, and she needs braces. She knows she needs braces, so she tries to make her own braces with paper clips and ends up cutting the shit out of her mouth. That, to me, is like one of the like gut-punch moments of this film. Oh, it's absolutely excruciating. And Harvey Keitel plays it incredibly well. There's no big pounding-the-wall... Uh, you know, howling to the heavens kind of breakdown. You just see that he's in complete and total despair because he feels he has failed as a man. He's failed as a father. He's failed as a man. He's not supporting his family, even though he's doing exactly what he should be doing. He's got a job. He's working in the factory. He's done nothing wrong, and yet he's a, he's a complete failure. It's an extraordinary piece of acting, I think, that scene. Yeah, and we all know that Harvey Keitel likes to howl. <laughs> but that whole, you know, he's going in, he's punching the clock, he's doing the work, and he's still a failure is, I, I think in a lot of ways, Mike, with this show, there's kind of parallels for me in my upbringing to when we talked about First Blood. And, you know, I grew up around factory workers and Vietnam veterans. And it was like I saw that same sort of despair that when we talked about First Blood. And I also see that same kind of thing like you were talking about with Keitel's character. And there's a scene where they all sneak off to go to this party where they're, you know, drinking, doing coke and, you know, sleeping with these women who aren't their their wives or significant others. And they're sitting around afterward and they're talking about sort of... I, I guess I would say sort of the working man's goals. Every time I get coked up like this, I think I'm never going to go back to the plant. Don't know why the fuck I do. Because the credit man needs your paycheck. Credit's the only thing you can get free from the company. Got a house, fridge, dishwasher, washer, dryer, TV, stereo, motorcycle, car. Buy this shit, buy that shit. All you got's a bunch of shit. You don't even own it. Can't give it back because it's already broke down. Sometimes I get so depressed. I start thinking about the shit I promised Carolyn. Shit I ain't never gonna be able to do. And I know 
man's supposed to take care of his family. I never was good with money, man. I just fucking always broke, you know. I fucking can't get the knack of that shit. God knows I tried, man. I think maybe if Smokey wasn't around, we wouldn't have no motherfucking fun. When you were growing up in that neighborhood, that was the thing. That was the goal. It was like, I'm slaving away... 50 hours and doing overtime and doing all this stuff on the line, but I'm going to get that boat or I'm going to get that vacation house up north. And that's what it's going to be about. So like I grew up hearing that kind of stuff. And when I saw this film, I was just like, there's such a truth to it. Yeah, it's like those guys who are driving around in the really nice car and they're living in a shitbox home. Their kids don't have food to put on the table. It's just like you get caught up in this whole idea of the luxury item of the the goal that everybody else has you know you see the one guy who's got the boat you want to keep up with the joneses you want to have that boat as well you want to attain that level but the whole game is out of order as far as you know like i said you can't even feed your family so they're going to be dreaming about those luxury items they're not going to be dreaming like oh yeah and now i can get my little girl braces it's funny, this movie actually reminded me of certain commercials that used to run locally in New York when I was growing up, which was the, the 60s and 70s. One of them was for Apex Technical School, and the other was for um, a company that would help you get your trucking license. And the trucking license one was the really bad one, because there's a guy coming home from work, his wife has dinner on the table, and his kid is saying, oh, sandwiches again? It is a gut punch of a 30-second ad to get you to sign up for some, to get your trucking license. Sandwiches again? I'm sorry, honey. You know I'm having trouble stretching the paycheck. I know. I don't have any training. It's tough to get a good job. You know those ads for Driver Training Institute? They say those men make good money, and you don't even need a high school diploma. Maybe I should call Driver Training Institute. You're right. You should call. Trailer drivers do earn top money on most Teamster Union jobs. And that's the the kind of not getting anywhere tone that Blue Collar captures really perfectly. And then sort of like the extra layer on top of that that really gets pronounced, I think, as we get further into the film and definitely by the end, is all of this stuff about how race is on the shop floor. Through especially Pryor's character... And through Yafakoto's character, there there are these moments where they have to deal with people making racist remarks or just sort of they feel the system is stacked against them. They're never going to get the promotion. They're never going to get the raise just because they're black dude. And I know where I grew up, it was all working class white guys. So I would often hear like that same kind of language that was directed at the black folks out of the mouths of those working class guys who were either shop foremans or just guys who were working on the line. It's interesting to me that race is there throughout this entire film, but it really doesn't start to get brought up until towards the end of the movie when the, you know, we've had this boiling pot going on for the entire film. And then it just seems like it just kicks into overdrive by really addressing or bringing that out of the shadows, this whole idea of the racism. Once you start pitting the Harvey Keitel character against the Richard Pryor character, that 
is when it just really explodes. And you've got that great scene of Richard Pryor when he's on the bridge. I think it's over I-75 where you have the Goodyear sign. And it's so funny to see this Goodyear sign oh. in this film that we grew up seeing you know, all the time. Yeah. The ever-forward march of capitalism kind of thing. <laughs> And that whole scene there with the older union guy talking to Richard Pryor and him talking about how much progress they've made by being able to bring these black guys into the fold and get them into the union, get them in, into these jobs. I mean, it just really, you know, again, tears the heart out of you. And then once that level of racism starts being injected into the Keitel and Pryor uh, relationship, it just tears everything asunder. And it's that scene right after that one, actually, because you have the one on the overpass, but there's that scene where they're on the porch. Oh, and yeah. It's, and it's Keitel and uh, Richard Pryor, and he's like, look, you know, don't take the offer. Don't take what they're dangling in front of you. And Pryor just basically says, I'm up to my ass in bills. What am I going to do? Jerry, with this union rep job, man, it's a club in my hands. You're my friend, Jerry. But you're thinking white. What the fuck does that mean? It means that you got more chances than I got, Jerry. And you're always gonna have more chances than me. I got one chance, and I'm gonna take it. I'm black, Jerry. The police ain't gonna protect me. Six months after this fucking thing's over, I'll end up right back where I started from. Living in some ghetto, up to my black ass in bills, wondering what night they're gonna come in and kill the kids, Carolyn and myself. If I got to kiss ass, I'm going to pick the ass I want to kiss. And it ain't going to be the motherfucking police, because they ain't going to do nothing but shit in my face. Or smoke you white. Man, you don't know the deal, do you? What the fuck, you think I'm crazy? You want revenge? You got a gun? You go out looking for killers, man, because damn if I am. The whole sort of dialogue that he has is basically white privilege, is what he says without calling it that. It's like, you're going to be fine. You know, you're going to be fine. You're, they're going to take care of you. You're going to be fine because you're a white guy, but what about me? And it's just like that whole scene with those two guys, that informs to me the last scene and the way that you see sort of prior acting with um, Kaitel in that final scene, that it's either the way Schrader has built the perception into our head about that scene or it's the way that Pryor actually does it in a dramatic way that you can tell that he's kind of putting on an act like, like there's a part of him that still likes this guy, but he has to act like a hard ass. He has to go after him in front of everyone in order to prove himself in some way. And yet there's also, you can feel a very real anger in that character because of what happened to Smokey. They know that he was murdered. They know that was not an accident. Both of them appeal. Well, probably wouldn't have happened to the white guy. That death of Smokey scene is, oh my God, that is just amazing. And I know that, you know, it's not necessarily realistic as far as the way that the, you know, he's, he's trapped in this painting room and it's not necessarily realistic as far as the equipment that he's using to paint this car and just the way that everything is set up, yada, yada, yada. But, it is such an effective death, and it is just, you know, he films it, Schrader films it in such a way that it is just so claustrophobic, and Kodo is just so effective as far as showing the emotion of him being in here and suffocating in this 
in this room that's just filling up with these paint fumes and just the blue paint kind of, you know, taking over the screen is just remarkable. And I think it also works really well on a metaphorical level. I mean, it's not necessarily a, a subtle metaphor, but in the context of that scene, it's incredibly powerful. I mean, that's that's what the working guy's life is like. It's suffocation, and, and he's just suffocating a little bit faster. And we talked a little bit about the way that the union is, and are they your friend, are they not your friend? And it cracks me up, there's one character that's played by Cliff DeYoung who's kind of trying to help blow the lid off of the union and some of the dirty practices and all this stuff. And when he is talking, again, going back to Yafet Kodo, it's mostly him, Cliff DeYoung, in this scene, and then Kodo in the back, like, looking at him, and he's looking at him askance, which I love to say the word askance, but he's looking at him that way as DeYoung is explaining why he's there, why he's at this bar with these guys, and how he wants to kind of, like, help, you know, blow the lid off the union. And, man, Yafet Kodo comes at him, and he's just like, you know, the union's there to protect me. And he just is spouting the company line, even though he knows probably in his heart of hearts that it is absolute bullshit. And he's going to find out how much that union is protecting him as the film goes on. Well, it's also kind of great that his first reaction to that character is, oh man, I get it. You're the FBI. Right. You're here to try and poke around and find out secrets about our unionizing. You're the enemy. Um, it, It feels almost paranoid, and yet you realize that, yeah, well, there's plenty of reason to be paranoid. And he's just picked up on it faster than some of the others. He happens to be wrong in this case, but nonetheless, that paranoia is completely justified. Rob, you brought up that scene of them on that couch, and that is definitely one of my favorite scenes in the film as well, just to see the three actors in that long take. And I know that... (laughs) Them actually not getting along was one of the reasons why we have some of these longer group shots without the coverage to cut back and forth between the three actors. But you do have some of these now as a result of that, these interesting takes where you have the three of them in a long take and them just kind of bouncing off of each other. So good. I really like a scene like that. It just it goes on for a long time and we're just looking at them sitting there and just their interactions is remarkable. And to me, it really does show the dramatic range of Richard Pryor. Before this, he had done a few other things, but not really, I think, on this level where he wasn't jokey. So, you know, in the stuff that he would do after this, you know, the Gene Wilder pictures are much more, you know, humorous in that way. But you really get a feeling that, you know, this guy who was, at this time, he was doing records before the, the, the Sunset Strip film and all of that other stuff. I mean, he was, he was still a wild man. You know, to a certain extent, we talked about that a little bit on the uh, Boss Nigger episode when we um, watched Adios Amigo and he was in there with Fred Williamson and the whole story about how he helped to write Blazing Saddles, but he couldn't be in Blazing Saddles because he was uh, the insurance wouldn't pay for him. So to just see him in here and in, in doing the work that he's doing, I think, is is quite good because Keitel in this period is is quite good as well because, I mean, he had come through Mean Streets and and a few other films in the 70s and I think would get more attention later from us uh, younger guys, especially, you know, with like Reservoir Dogs and um, Bad Lieutenant, but that's more of the uh, the howling um, era of Harvey Keitel, as we were discussing earlier. 
when we talked about Hit a few years ago and how good he was in that, Richard Pryor, I thought that he, he definitely grew as an actor throughout the years, and I don't think that the Richard Pryor of Hit might have been able to carry off the role that the Richard Pryor of Blue Collar was able to do, but he definitely was able to pull off these roles. I mean, something even like uh, The Mac, he was humorous in it, but he was definitely able to have that traumatic edge to him and I really appreciate that he was able to go back and forth and you never necessarily knew with a performance from him which way he was going to go so you know he's he was in some shit I'll completely admit that he was in a lot of crappy crappy movies but when he was on and when he was in a good film he had a good director good script and all this and people to work off of he was able to be fantastic not every richard Pryor film is the toy although you know interestingly the toy is one of those movies that he could have been great in because that's the the scenario of the toy is so about race and wealth and privilege and had you seen the Richard Pryor you see in Blue Collar in the toy, that movie would have been a, a real sucker punch. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah, I just, it was uh, not up to the standards that I wish it had been. I mean, even in something like a Brewster's Millions, the remake of that, I thought he was definitely much more on when it came to that role. But yeah, it just didn't feel like he had the material to work with, and he didn't have that edge when it came to something like the toy. But I agree with you. He could have knocked it out of the park had he been able to be more edgy, had it not been a family-friendlier film. Because let's face it, fundamentally, Richard Pryor wasn't family-friendly. That wasn't the thing that, was, that he was great at. The thing he was great at was taking an unbelievable potent wellspring of fury and making it kind of funny when he wanted to. But that anger was always there. He had a real Lenny Bruce quality to him. It was all about the anger and turning it into something that, yeah, people could laugh at, but when they were laughing at it, they were still feeling the fury underneath and a fury that wasn't undirected or entirely generated from a personal place. It was a fury it came out of social conditions that, you know, you should be angry about. And then, I mean, for me, outside of Bone, which we did on the show about a year ago, and then obviously seeing him in Alien, I didn't really know too much about Yafet Koto and hadn't really seen him in too many things. But I think he does a really good job in here. And to be honest, I think Bone is a, a great film that he puts in a great performance as well in that. And both of them, to a certain extent, are talking about issues of race. Well, I mean, Bone is the great undiscovered Larry Cohen film. Uh, again, I think because if people don't gravitate towards it because it's not fun in the way a lot of his other movies are. But again, that is a very angry, very socially conscious movie, and Yafet Koto is absolutely extraordinary in it. Personally, I cannot talk about Yafet Koto without having to recommend Truck Turner. He was amazing in that film. Just, uh, yeah, he had some real menace to him when he wanted to turn that on and he was really able to do that role well and then something like a liberation of lb jones i mean he was in quote-unquote black exploitation films but they usually had a different spin to them so like bone you know some 
people tried to pass off Bone as a black exploitation film, which it definitely is not. But then something like a, a across 110th Street or um, even like a Monkey Hustle or Friday Foster, he brought a real weight to these roles that some of them didn't necessarily deserve. But because he is the actor that he is, he's able to bring those those roles alive. So, and then even in you know some of the I don't know, fluffier stuff, even though I, I don't consider this movie fluffy, but Running Man, he is terrific in, even though he's playing like third banana in the film, he always brings something to the table that I don't think other actors would. The one thing that I've come to realize about Yafet Koto that he can be menacing, but at the same time, the guy has just a killer smile. Like the the, the other actor that I can think of who can kind of do the same is um is like Samuel L. Jackson that he could kind of play menacing or he can play kind of evil, but he's got this grin, he's got this look that at the same time can be really interesting. One of the things I kept thinking rewatching this movie was that he's actually delivering a very similar performance in Alien. And one of the things I think that a lot of people forget about Alien is how powerful that class clash is in it. You know, he and Harry Dean Stanton really are they're they're the guys on the floor in that movie. And they're the guys who have to do all the really shitty jobs in that movie. And um, to look at him there and to look at him in this movie is, is really kind of illuminating, I think. Just because I know we're going to get emails if we don't say this one title, I just want to say the title, Midnight Run. Him as Alonzo Mos- Mosley one of his killer roles, and that is, again, such an underrated film. That one I saw in the theaters, I didn't necessarily know what to make of it back in 88, but man, does it stand up, and it really works even today. No argument here. We talked a little bit about the ending, kind of brought it up, but um, maybe we should dig into that a bit more in terms of how it plays out, and especially that, that last scene with the voiceover and everything, that still frame. And at this point, what it is is the FBI guy has talked to Jerry Keitel's character about coming in and being evidence and helping the FBI in their investigation of the union. And at the same time, in order for him to kind of get back on track and keep his mouth shut, the union is given the um, prior character of Zeke a, a better position. And all of this kind of comes out of, as you were saying, the death of Smokey. Keitel is brought to the factory floor and there's this sort of showdown between him and Zeke in the end. Uh, it's, it's all right. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me talk to the new steward. Yeah, let him talk to me. Tell me about how you like the working man. You don't care about nothing but your own dumb Polak ass. Hey, blood, you double-crossed me. You tried to get me killed, didn't you? I ain't your blood, motherfucker. You do anything to stay out of jail. Even sell out on your friend. I ain't the one that sold out, nigga. Shit, you are. Yeah? Jive hunky. You ain't looking out for nobody but number one. That's you, ain't you? Jive white boy. You ain't nothing now, you fucking nigga. And I hope your mother and father will protect your ass, because you're going to die, fucking nigga. Go fuck out! Get out! Someone picks something up, and it looks like he's going to whack him with it, and then it's freeze-framed, and then we get this voiceover about, it's all about, you know, keeping you in your place. They put the lifers against the new boy, the young against the old, the black against the white. Everything they do is to keep us in our place. And I think that's where we get our one of the... I mean, I think that there were some N-bombs in there before, but this is definitely when Keitel 
pulls it out for prior, and it just becomes one of the most painful moments for me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, that, you know, that's a painful piece of language from a white man. There are no two ways about it. I mean, you hear Richard Pryor use the word nigger earlier in the movie, and it's being used not in a funny way. It's, it's not, oh, my, oh my niggers. It, it's, he's saying, you know, that the black guys at the factory when they, uh, at the, on the floor, when they ask for stuff, they don't get it. The white guys do. But there, it really is, it's like a weapon. And for me, when that happens, it's such a, like I said, this, this turn from guys who were friends, they were hanging out, they were planning things together, to just becoming enemies. And not only just enemies, but it's like Kaitel has become like the other people who were holding not only Pryor and Koto's character down, but also him down in terms of the various like foremans and levels of company guys who are on the floor telling him to get to work. So originally it's like he was working with them to kind of fight the system a little bit. And then in the end becomes part of it in his own way, even though he's trying to bring it down. I don't know. It's, it's odd. It's, it's sort of a, the, the, the way that his character turns into one of those people that originally I think he would have despised. It's also painful though, because you know, a couple of times throughout the film, it's mentioned that his background is Polish and you know that he heard the term dumb Polak more than once in his life. So you know that he's not immune to understanding the pain of, of racial epithets. And, and it just makes it that much worse to hear him say what he does. Yeah, he is putting up a wall now between him and Pryor when they used to be pretty darn good friends. And that's it. That's the, the nail in the coffin. And it's so, it just hurts when you see people that were friends and laughing and having a drink together and able to get past a lot of things earlier in the film and just the whole friendship is gone at that point. It's also painful not in terms of their uh, personal relationship, their friendship, but in terms of the fact that one of the things that united them was the fact that they both know that they are not even halfway up the ladder. They're both down at the bottom of the heap for one reason or another. And there's a certain unity in that that transcends personal relationships, but even that has been shattered by the end of the film. So, Rob, did you want to talk about the music? Yeah, and then we get into um, basically a bookend of what you hear on the the front of the film, which is this uh, blues track. And it's probably the most like straightforward blues track you're ever going to hear Captain Beefheart do with with Ry Cooter. And I, I thought that was a, a great thing to bring in him. And then throughout the film, there's, you know, a decent amount of, of blues music. I mean, at one point there's um, Howlin' Wolf and, and things like that. So, I mean, really, I think that Schrader is really bringing in this whole idea of the, you know, the music of the downtrodden, and specifically the music of the downtrodden from the poor black perspective, which obviously is the blues. But when you have Captain Beefheart, it's sort of a recontextualized concept. And it's also a very pure use of the blues, because I think sometimes when people say the blues, they really think of it as being, oh, my baby left me, now my heart is broken. But all of the early blues artists were singing about a great deal more. They were talking about hellhounds at their heels. They were talking about a really existential kind of blues that came from being downtrodden, from knowing that you were going to have to work twice as hard and twice as long as anybody else to get half as far. That, that's, that's real blues. I like how the 
composer of the film, Jack Nietzsche, is credited along with Ry Cooter and Paul Schrader as uh, the hardworking man lyricists. So kind of neat uh, that they were there penning the lyrics with them. I don't know how much, but nice that they were kind of involved with that as well. The other thing about the use of the blues for me, too, is that it is this import that comes up from the South. And when you, and this sort of plays in the background, although these guys are a generation off from that, is that the one thing I've always said about growing up in Detroit is that in a lot of ways it is the, you know, the largest southern city in the north in the idea that these guys came up from Appalachia, they came up from the, the you know, sharecropping in the south and all of this, the great migration, Jim Crow, and trying to escape all that to come to Detroit because at the time in the 20s and the 30s, it was the place where you didn't have to work you know, sure, you know, the Rouge wasn't necessarily a nice place, but it was better than a coal mine. It was better than picking cotton, and you got paid better, and you had the opportunity to become middle class, and as that was sort of starting to develop, the idea of the middle class. So all of these guys brought that stuff from the South with them, and in a lot of ways, I think that that interaction, as you were talking about, was sort of the um, um, the, the foreman on the shop line and, and the use of you know, the, the N-word and, and all of that race stuff, I think, are issues that were unresolved from the South that found its way to Detroit in, in many ways as well. You know, and I'm sure that this happened in many other cities that were quote-unquote factory towns. But definitely around here, you know, up until like I'd say the 80s, it was a real viable option to just plan out your life when it came to I'm going to go to high school, I'll graduate from high school, or maybe not even, and then I'll go to work at a factory. My dad's been working at a factory. My grandfather's been working at a factory. It's a cinch for me to get this job on the line, and that's where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. And that was a sense of security that we had around here for a lot of people, was that there was a guaranteed job for you once you hit I don't know, 16. And then when that disappeared, that changed so much. And this whole idea of blue collar is right towards the end, I think, of that era. This is just shortly before the quote-unquote Japanese invasion. This is before you're going to get a really racist film like a gung-ho or something. So I think that's like, what, 84, 85. So this is before that period you're still in the it's horrible for me to say this you're still in the glory days and this is what the glory days were about yeah and i mean what is it 81 82 was the vincent chin episode which was a he was a chinese man who was an american who was beaten to death by auto workers because of the xenophobia against uh, the japanese they thought he was japanese and they beat him to death so you know this is this is a time where you could still have that, as you were saying. This is the era, like I said, of my uncle who worked 31 years for Ford. It was funny because you were talking about it was still a viable option. I remember by the time I was in high school and I was graduating in the mid-90s, you didn't want to work the line. What you wanted to do was go to school to be an engineer, and then you could be basically your dad's boss. That was sort of the plan in my neighborhood. But I, the idea of punching parts or working on the line in that way, I would just stick my head in the press. I, I, it would drive me crazy. Okay, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the co-writer and director of Blue Collar, Paul Schrader, after these messages. 
Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me what you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. Body count. The mathematics of murder and menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC Podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. Christopher Media, the Weedsman Podcast. Here's rickets, polio, conjunctivitis, AIDS. AIDS. Let's just, let's just go hog wild. Be in the car accident, you just <laughs> use a little bit, and you'll be fine. Yeah, rub it on your car and yourself. <laughs> It'll fix your car and your bones. <laughs> Try this special trick to get out of traffic tickets with Rick Simpson oil. Rub it on the cop. He'll just go away. <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast. Every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hello from Cinema Detroit, Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema. We deliver an eclectic mix of current indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former school and a warm hometown atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Tumblr. We look forward to seeing you soon at 3420 Cass Avenue in Midtown Detroit, 48201. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10... Free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item 
and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Driving man, six foot solid from the ground. How did you get into writing? Uh, a good question. I never really thought of it. I mean, I I was a kind of a self starter in that um, I was like one of the kids who would go door to door and you know, have you met Jesus Christ or do you want to buy some shit? And so that was the sort of kid I was, and uh, and I wanted to do something uh, that had a kind of um, prophetizing edge. Uh, you know, I initially wanted to be a minister. I was raised in the church, and then that 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 I wanted to be a lawyer. Then I realized I had to get along with people to be a lawyer. So then I started thinking, well, maybe I could be a, a journalist. Um, and uh, you know, you, you you could really, you know, be a uh, you could make a difference and be uh, your own person as a journalist. So that's sort of how I drifted over there. And then, of course, I liked literature, and so uh, I found I was good at uh, writing. And so, and and then film sort of came into the picture because. It had been uh, forbidden by my church. So in the 60s, when all these explosion of European films were coming out, uh, I got very interested in reading about them, and uh, and I couldn't really see any of them because they weren't being shown except for one or two in my hometown. So uh, then I went for a summer to, to Columbia Film School uh, just to just to uh, see movies, uh, so that's how it all sort of started. Was there one particular film that really kind of lit a fire under your butt? Not at that time. Uh, well, I mean, it was the European cinema, so it, it, it really was Bergman. I mean, because of my church background, and there was a uh, a softcore porn theater in Grand Rapids that had run on hard times, and they ran a Bergman festival. Just you know, try to hope to get people to come. And we at the college newspaper reviewed this, which was uh, you know kind of foreboding because you know movies were outside the accepted uh, norm. And so it all it all really started with Bergman. It all started with um, um, through a glass darkly. Oh wow! Yeah, that must have really blown the top of your head off. Yeah. So I want to know, you went on and you were writing for the LA Free Press, but you were also, were you doing a publication of your own at that time too? Uh, yeah, I was, um, well, when I was in New York, I um, threw a bit of luck and uh, happenstance. I uh, met Paul and Kale and uh, I became one of her tribe and she got me into UCLA Film School and she got me a job at the LA Free Press. 
Uh, and so, and at the same time, I was freelancing, and I had a film magazine called Cinema, which is a large format, glossy magazine. Uh, that was a vanity publication that came out of Beverly Hills. Uh, and then I was also writing a book for UCAL Press. So that uh, that was, you know, when I got to Los Angeles, which was in 68, it was a, uh, I would say it was an exciting time to be in Los Angeles. But, uh, but I really just jumped into, you know, make, educating myself in the world of film, which at that time meant all the film societies, all the little rep places, you know, all the groups, you know, you, you couldn't sit at home and watch movies. It sounds like you had a voracious appetite. Yes, but pretty much all I did there for a while, I, you know, I kept a log, or, you know, we, 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 we logging in every film I saw and uh, um, my feelings about it and all of that. Tell me more about cinema. I mean, was that your publication, or were you working with other folks at the at that? There was a guy named Jack Hansen who was a kind of a he had a clothing line, and he had a nightclub and a restaurant, and this was and a lot of um, it was a uh, it was a, a, a very trendy Holly, uh, Beverly Hills kind of show business uh, guy. And he had this publication to um, uh, uh, to give out at his stores and his clubs, and uh, and all he really cared about was you know the uh, pictures. Uh, so it was a very glossy magazine. Uh, but uh, I don't know how, but I sort of got to take it over. And uh, so we turned it into a, a serious film magazine with small print and very large pictures. So that was early, or sorry, late 60s going into the early 70s. How did you decide to go into actually writing screenplays? Oh, well, I have, in some way, the decision was sort of forced upon me by Pauline uh, because was in, I think, about 71. Um, she had got me a film, a, a real job as a film critic. I think it was in Seattle, and um, where I would actually get paid. And I was at her place at Christmas time, and uh, she, because publications around the country would uh, ask her when they were looking for film critics because she kept up on everybody. And so she knew all the young, you know, she knew the minor leagues of film critics. And uh, that's one of the reasons she was also as powerful as she was, because when she took a position on a film, there were usually, you know, a half dozen or a dozen others that would come along. You know, you would get a phone call from her. She'd say, well, you know, we really have to support Lachine Waz. And uh, so, uh, and I... Um, I was kind of reluctant uh, because I had been in Los Angeles now uh, and I was sort of thinking, you know, maybe I should try to write something myself. And uh, so I said to Pauline, uh, you know, can I think about it for a week? Because I know that if I go to Seattle, that will be the end of this uh, 
idea of possibly writing something uh, for films. And uh, she said, no, you, you can't have a week. I want a decision now. And I said, well, it's two days before Christmas. You know, she said, I want a decision now. And, and I said, well, if that's the case, then the decision is no. And that was sort of the end of uh, that phase of my relationship with her. And I very shortly, you know, left the room and headed back to California. And so I sort of knew that I had just burned the bridge. I had spent several years building. And uh, and then, uh, so I was now thinking along those lines. And then uh, shortly after that, a number of other things fell apart. I, um, I My marriage fell apart. I uh, was at AFI the very first year, and I got into a dispute with George Stevens Jr., and I quit in protest. Uh, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a place to live. And I was sort of um, drifting. And out of this period of drifting, um, I, I realized I had a, a pain in my stomach. I went to the emergency room and I had an ulcer. I um, realized I hadn't spoken to anyone in, in almost a month of just driving around, brooding. Uh, and so when I was in the hospital, this metaphor occurred to me of the taxi cab and this kid uh, imprisoned in this yellow steel box floating around the city like a, like a coffin in a sewer, you know, surrounded by people but desperately alone. And the strength of that metaphor then, uh, I had reached a point where what I was going through was not going to be addressed by nonfiction. Uh, I had to make a leap into fiction in order to exercise this character that I was becoming. And if I didn't you know, fictionalize him, there was a risk that I could become him. And uh, so I got into screenwriting for the very best of reasons, which was uh, a, a need. I had a problem, and, and screenwriting was going to be the solution. Uh, you know that sounds kind of improbable now in the world of uh, uh, all these screenwriting classes, which are designed purely to uh, at trade schools. Uh, but uh, you know, I really saw that as a way to deal with this with an with, with a personal problem. And uh, I wrote a screenplay because that was what I knew. I didn't know books. I mean, I was reading. I was making a little money covering scripts for Columbia, you know, you know, five dollars a script. So I had been reading a lot of scripts, and so I knew what a script was. And uh, and so I, I wrote that uh, very quickly in two drafts and almost continuously. And then I left uh, Los Angeles uh, just to get my health and my sanity back. I drifted around the country for about six months visiting old friends and couch surfing. And uh, and then I came back and uh, made another stab at L.A. again. Now, was that around the time that you wrote the Yakuza with your brother? But that's, why, that's why I came back, because I was in North Carolina, and a letter uh, arrived from Japan and tracked me down. 
and he too had lost his marriage, lost his faith, and he was drifting, and he was in Kyoto, and he had fallen into watching Yakuza movies, and he sent me this long letter all about Yakuza movies, you know, and it was clear that the Yakuza movies was performing for him the kind of function that uh, Wandering was performing for me, and uh, and Bruce Lee had just died, and I thought, I said, you know, they're going to be looking for a new Asian kind of martial arts guy, and maybe the next one's going to be Japanese, and maybe, uh, you know, this could be something, and, uh, and uh, I knew somebody in Los Angeles who wasn't really an agent, he was more of a, he was a book agent, and I mentioned this him, and he uh, gave my brother and I enough money to come home and write the script. Obviously, that was a, a subject of a bidding war, got a lot of notoriety, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things I'm curious about was how did your guys' screenplay differ from what we ended up seeing on screen? It's hard to remember anyway. It was so long ago. What we wrote was more just action. It was based on Yakuza movies, you know. And uh, what Sydney was interested in was more cross-cultural relationships and stuff like that. Uh, you know, Sydney was not just you know, an, an action director. And so, and he, he was also a director who loved to have writers and rewrite. So, you know, he would have something rewritten even if it didn't need to be rewritten. So, uh, so what I think happened with the film is that it started to fall between two stools. There was the original stool, which was a um, cross-cultural gangster movie. Then there was the Sidney Powell movie, which was a um, cross-cultural relationship movie. And um, it sort of ended up becoming not enough of one and not enough of the other. It sort of fell between two stools. I wanted to jump ahead a little bit here to Blue Collar. That one, again, you were writing with your brother. How did you decide that this was going to be a collaboration between you two? What was going on was that I was writing something else at this time. I forget what it was. And I was at the Writers Guild talking, and uh, a black guy came up to me and started telling me a story about um, his father, who uh, worked in the auto plants in Detroit and who um, had died uh, a kind of broken man. And and I just said to him off the top of my head, I said, you know, what he should have done is robbed his fucking union. That's what he should have done. And I said, that, that's a cool story. And, um, and he said, no, he wasn't interested. And I, and I was talking to my brother, and I said, I'm working on a script now, so I really don't have time. But I just told a guy an idea that I think is a good idea. And so why don't we do this as a side project? You start to, uh, we'll talk it through, you do a rough draft on it, and I'll come back to it after I finish this script. And so that's how that happened. 
how did you how did this one become the one that um, you first directed? How was this chosen to be your first directorial gig? I decided to make a decision that I wanted to direct, uh, not because I felt my scripts were you know being badly made. Uh, it's just because I wanted to be my own person, and I felt a screenwriter was sort of half of a writer. And that you really had to become a real writer, uh, write books or criticism, or you had to become a filmmaker. And so I started trying to become a filmmaker. And, uh, and I had the first film was going to be a script I had written just for this purpose an exploitation film. You know, uh, uh, I sold it to AIP, I sold it to Larry Gordon, uh, and this is Rolling Thunder. And and, you know, I was going to get in the door the same way Scorsese and Coppola had, you know, by working that genre. And and then Larry Gordon moved his deal over to Columbia. So then we were going to do it at Columbia. Then he moved his deal over to 20th, and 20th didn't want me. So I had scouted locations and all that on the film, and then I got bumped. Uh, and then... Uh, they made the film and then ended up selling it back to AIP. Um, so th- that had been my experience. Uh, so I knew that if I was going to direct a film, I would have to get closer to the control mechanisms. It wasn't a case that I, ha- I would have to be a better boy. Uh, it was just that I would have to have, have better cards. And so that I would have to have a relationship with the talent, with the money that gave me the leverage that you know I couldn't be pushed out. And so, writing Blue Collar, I had a, you know to write for three B-level stars because I couldn't approach an A-level star. I was an unknown. I felt that three B-level stars would equal one A-level star. And that, um, and I knew a girl who had been seen prior at that time, and I knew that, you know, this this would be a kind of a smart thing for him, and but and that the idea of the two black guys and the one white guy would appeal to him because he wouldn't be stuck playing the token black guy. Which was a which was the the standard at that time, um, and that he could be uh, uh, he didn't have to be so nice because all the black roles at that time meant you had to be nice, um, you know the Sydney Portier schools, and so by having uh, two black characters, I could make him more interesting, and I knew that would appeal to him, and so. He came on, and then I knew Harvey from the you know, taxi driver on Bean Street. And so then I had two of the three. And I had an agent who had gone over to um, Norman Lear's company. And he was working at Norman Lear's company. And Norman Lear was very interested at that time in doing you know, socially progressive stuff. He had uh, all the family, he had the Jeffersons, you know. And so this seemed like a good fit for him. And so his company, 
get the name of it at that time, uh, put the seed money up to package this thing, to get you know Richard and Harvey on the on the dotted line, to get a budget, uh, to bring in you know the third actor. Then eventually, um, you know, Universal came in because of uh, they just had done a film with a prior that was very successful, and uh, and since I, you know, I was locked in at a script level and at a relationship level with both the money and the talent, there's no way to get me out. I have read that you kind of told each of the main characters that they were the lead of the film. Is that true? Yeah, well, that was that whole notion of uh, the, the three B actors equal one A actor. So you go to each of the B actors and say, you're the lead of the movie. This is your story. And, you know, and, and you can certainly see the film from that point of view. So that you've been telling, you know, this is a story, this is a Smokey's story, this is Zeke's story, this is Jerry's story. And, uh, and so you know that sooner or later there's going to have to be a day of reckoning. But th- that's, uh, you know, that's the, the, the angle you had been pushing. Was that to kind of get these guys to cooperate with you, or why did you choose to do it that way? To get them to, to commit. You don't get to commit by saying, hey, you're going to be, uh, uh, I want you to play Ed McMahon to Richard, to Harvey Keitel's Johnny Carson. Or, I mean, that, that, uh, rather with the, go to Harvey and say, would you play Ed McMahon to uh, prior Johnny Carson? No, he, he's not, that's not an attractive uh, way, a description for him. What was the relationship like between those guys on set? Uh, well, I mean, you probably heard the stories. It was um, as, um, acrimonious and unpleasant uh, a situation as I have ever seen, uh, starting from probably starting the first week. Uh, and uh, uh, it, uh, and we were in Kalamazoo, we were in Detroit, it was hot. And uh, you know, there's a lot of racial tension in the script, and that all just sort of bled over into the film. Uh, and, you know, Richard started getting kind of paranoid, thinking that, uh, you know, Harvey's, Harvey's going to be Terry Malloy here and I'm going to be the his black pal. And Harvey started thinking, you know, Richard is Johnny Carson and I'm going to be a big man. And Yahoo is starting to think, there's no room for me at all. You know, these two guys are going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to be the, the tag along. So, so, you know, that friction was right under the surface. And, you know, they, and then it just grew. Um, and hardly a day went by when there was not some level of uh, acting out, whether verbally or physically. Uh, so it was, you know, I, I said to myself while we were doing it, this is what is wrecking his like, I, I cannot do it. Uh, and it never was that bad again. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, it was uh, a kind of trial by fire because, and, and you would have to plan your day's work on what absolute, what shot you absolutely needed because at any moment in the day, one of the actors would leave. So you would, you know, she would say to the cinematographer, "If we only get one shot today, 
what will it be? And if we get two shots, what will it be? If we get three shots, you know, if if God willing, we're all here after lunch, what what will we do then? Yeah. And then I had uh, very different styles part of my actors uh, because Harvey liked to run up the takes, and he would really get going you know, after five or six takes. And Richard, the first take would be good, but the second and the third would be really good. And then by the fourth take, he'd be fall, he'd have fallen off. He just didn't have the technique to repeat a line with the same juice. You know, on stage, he always changed things up. Well, he would start to improvise fairly soon. And, um, and so I never knew quite what Richard would be saying at any given time. He would say to me, I'm going to try something this time. And, of course, that made Harry furious. So, and so we, I couldn't really rehearse with them together anymore. So I would go from trailer to trailer and, re- and rehearse the scenes with them individually and then bring them out. And often we would be rehearsing with a stand-in with Harvey for a while, and then when Harvey was ready, we would bring Richard in. And as soon as Richard came in, uh, we'd be set up and we would shoot. He would go straight, he would sit down, and we would shoot. So that that was the kind of uh, environment. And uh, the most memorable blow-up was we were this, we were shooting in a bar in Detroit, so this would be a second week, a third week. And uh, I'm, I'm in a two-shot with uh, Richie and uh, Harley. And uh, Richard is now going off book. Uh, but usually Harvey kind of stays on book. Well, Harvey decided to go off book, too. So now they're both, now they're both swinging it. Well, as soon as Pryor realized that Keitel was no longer on text, he was free. And he just started sailing. He just started, you know... He just started going into a total groove uh, because he wasn't being held back by any dialogue requirements. Harvey just saw Richard sort of go off like a Roman candle and just be sparkling. And he realized that he was getting blown out of the shot. And so he looked right into the lens and moved the ashtray and said the ashtray was here, meaning... uh, he, he broke the take, meaning there was a continuity problem. And, and Richard saw that. And before I could even say cut, he was on high rate. And, you know, the next thing I knew was that uh, was, was Rashan, who was Richard's bodyguard, was on top of Richard, and I was on top of Rashan, <laughs> trying to pull the ball apart. Um, you know, and... and uh, so then I think that happened. I think there were three on-camera altercations. That was one. There was one between Pryor and Yafit. Uh, there was one between Patel uh, and Yafit. So it, it, was, you know, it, it infected the whole situation. What was Yafit like to work with on this? Because you've talked about kind of the the style of Pryor and of uh, Keitel, but where was he at in this mix? I didn't realize he was quite as crazy as he was. He claims now, he, uh, he claims to you know, have been abducted by extraterrestrials. You know this. 
Oh, his Facebook page is amazing. Yeah, okay. I I wrote to him. I said, you know, were you like this when we were working together? Oh, he said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. He said, you know, I, the, my, I had my first experience, <laughs> you know, around the time of Blue Collar. I said, oh, boy. I, I really wasn't even aware of how wax he was. But I knew he was pissed and that he was getting progressively drunk. He was starting to drink you know, on set. And prior then was starting to do coke on set, uh, just for the whole pressure of it all. And uh, so, uh, and then Richard afterward, you know, sort of blamed me because it was because of you, you know, that I started doing the coke again and all, all this stuff. And uh, so with, with the outfit, you know, I had to tread so carefully with both Harvey and Richard, that uh, I didn't mind if Gaffer was a little drunk. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was it like shooting in Detroit at this time? Because not a lot of films had shot there, and I'm trying to remember the last one prior to this, other than maybe Detroit 9000 in 73. Yeah, uh, well, we I had mistakenly thought we would get into an automaker, but then we got lucky with uh, Checker because they were in the middle of a labor dispute. Um, and uh, the head of Checker thought that this would be good for company morale and that, um, and that he was retooling the whole company to become uh, a regular car manufacturer. He, uh, he was killed in a plane crash shortly after we finished shooting, and that doomed Checker. But uh, Checker was trying to position itself to be uh, one of the big four. And uh, so uh, so then we were in Kalamazoo, and then it made sense to shoot exteriors in Detroit, shoot the bar stuff, then shoot some of the, a lot of street stuff, shoot the chase at the end, Detroit. And then we came back to Los Angeles to do uh, the, the interiors on the on the houses. Yeah, I was going to ask how much of what you were shooting was sets versus actual locations. There, there were no sets, uh, but um, the locations were in Kalamazoo, Detroit, and Los Angeles. I mean, w- w- once you get into a kind of inner city house, you know, you might as well be in Watts or Detroit. Yeah, not a lot of difference in those days. Yeah. What was the atmosphere like in Detroit at this time? This was just, uh, what, 10 years after the riots. You're in a a movie cocoon. I mean, I still thought of Detroit as a big deal. And when I was raised, it was Chicago and Detroit. You know, where would you go on a weekend if you were a kid? You'd go down to Detroit and see the Tigers and a barbecue, or you'd go to Chicago and do something at the museum there, you know, and they were kind of equal choices to me. Now, of course, Grand Rapids is a bigger city than Detroit and a wealthier city than Detroit. But at that time, Grand Rapids was, you know, the suburbs and Detroit was the big city. So I still, in my mind, had a big city notion of Detroit, and it still was. I mean, we were staying at the at the big hotel out by the GM headquarters. Uh, we were, you know, the, the Renaissance Plaza was there. 
it was still had a feeling of a town that you know was going to come back. What was your opinion of unions before you wrote the the screenplay? I was never. Uh, I mean, I was always kind of lefty. You know, I mean, I believed in the union movement, believed in all of that '60s stuff. You know, but I always also knew, and of course. Growing up in Michigan, you knew how corrupt the unions were because Jimmy Hoffa was in the paper every other day. And uh, But I also knew that as soon as four or five people get together to form a club, you know, whether they call it a church or a government or a union, the only reason they form a club is to tell other people what to do. And uh, sooner or later, you know, if you want to be your own person, you're going to have to you know, leave the club. You're shooting this film, and I imagine you're shooting it using labor unions to do this? Oh, yeah. What was their attitude? Did you get any crap from them? No. No, I mean, you know, uh, no, I, I I don't think so. I mean, you know, it. Uh, I, don't, I mean, there could have been. I, if there was, I never heard it. <laughs> so no work slowdowns that you knew of? No, no, no. <laughs> what do you think it was in the air at this time? Because Blue Collar is coming out uh, like a year before Norma Ray, and both of these are saying a lot of stuff about unions. Well, I mean, there, the feeling at that time was that uh, unions had gotten infiltrated by big crime and that... Uh, and that, in many cases, it was hard to tell union from man, unions from management. You know, it, it, they they were both serving kind of um, they, they both had corrupted values, and uh, so uh, the idea that somehow the unions could be disempowered really hadn't occurred to someone like me. You know, you always assume there would be unions. You just, you know, kind of hoped that, you know, you could reform them and get them back to being, you know, less like uh, a a mob outfit and more like a a worker's outfit. There was such a feeling of paranoia and just you can't fight City Hall going on at the same time in that film. How did you kind of... um, capture that as far as, I mean, just bringing that to life on screen? I don't know. I mean, I, I just it's, it's in the text, it's in the times, it's in the people. You know, I mean, you're, you're talking about uh, an environment where everything was always, you know, the man and the pigs and, you know, uh, we've been swimming in this anti-establishment waters for quite a few years by that time. And when I was working for the LA Free Press, you know, the LA Free Press would uh, you know, have the huge headline that say, "Pigs beat up protesters." So. <laughs> <laughs> so, with all of the the trials and tribulations of making this film, when it was released, how was it received? There was a kind of a uh, a throwdown that occurred over at Universal because. Even though they knew what I had done, and even though they respected it, and they didn't interfere with it, they also didn't know how to sell it. 
And they came up with an ad campaign, which was a knockoff of their previous ad campaign with Pryor on uh, Every Way But Loose. Which way is up? I don't know what's ever. One of those Pryor films. And so I said to Ned Tannen, who was the executive at Universal at that time, I said, what is this? You're running a contest to find out how many dumb niggers there are? <laughs> Uh, and, um, and he took that personally because I didn't just say it to him. I said it to the LA times and, uh, and, and so that, that strained the relationship and, uh, and, uh, so the, uh, the, the, the film got, uh, uh, very good, uh, press and it, uh, won a, uh, there was the, the Paris was just starting a film festival at that time to, to compete with Khan, and it, it won the grand prize there. But it never really had a commercial life. Yeah, I was always curious about that poster, that strange poster with the two faces of Richard Pryor. I was like, what, where did this thing come oh, from? Oh, it's the same poster. I mean, if you, uh, uh, you know, I, I can go on IMDb and look up his credits. But it's it's the same poster they had on another film. Yeah, it's uh, which way is up has him with three faces. So, God, that's bizarre. So that, that that's where the poster came from. Oh, that is so strange. So, <laughs> did this kind of scare you away from directing, or were you right back to it? Oh no, I was right back to it. Um, you know, I was already into hardcore. I I I figured I figured I'd have three shots. You know, I was very, very calculated about this. I figured I could get three shots. And the first shot, it was good that um, that the film turned out well and that it got respected and, you know, and now I, need, I needed to, you know, get something that made some money. And uh, so I had hardcore and then I had jingle. I had, I had them lined up. I figured, you know, if if I can get three shots off and they all miss, then that's that, you know. But if one of these bullets hits hits the target, I'll have a career. So I get, on the third one, I got lucky and you know made some money on that. That wasn't there. Um, I'm trying to remember. Isn't there a story about the production of that one taking a while or? Um, wasn't uh, Travolta involved for a while? Yeah, with that one. Uh, John bailed. Uh, a couple of weeks before principal, so we we uh, we we recast uh, uh, a week before principal, and then pushed back a week. Oh wow, that might have been disastrous, but it it definitely came out. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's interesting. At the in the same time this was happening, there were three films that had lost their leads and had replaced them, and the replacements. It made stars out of the replacements. And the one was uh, Travolta replaced by Gear, and the other was um, George Siegel replaced by Dudley Moore in 10, uh, and the other was Richard Dreyfus replaced by Roy Scheider in All That Jazz. Wow. So I, I don't want to uh, take up too much of your time today, but I um, I would definitely love to talk to you again. You've got so many great films I'd love to talk to you about, especially I'm a big fan of Light Sleeper. Um, but I did want to ask you, 
uh, what are you currently working on? Well, I, I had uh, what the Catholics call a anaphorbilis last year, in, in that I, I had a film that was taken away from me and, and re-edited to something that um, uh, I, I disowned, and, and so did Nick Cage, the star. So, um, but now I'm uh, uh, I'm casting. Uh, I'm doing a couple things. So one is a. Uh, I, I, I've been trying to explore new formats, so I'm going to do this web series, which is 10 10-minute segments uh, that will be initially uh, feature-length, but then released as 10-minute segments. And that's, as I did with Canyons a few years back, trying to find you know new models of uh, uh, exhibition and distribution and financing. And then, uh, and then toward the end of the year, I'm going to do um, a uh, film that uh, that I've always uh, said I would never make, but I'm finally going to make it, which is my uh, sort of spiritual film. Is that the Jesuit? No, no, the Jesuit um, is finished. I, I wish they would release it. The Jesuit is a um, is an action film. It's a revenge film. Uh, it's a Mexican film. I was going to do it, and then the company Maya fell apart, and I went and did Canyons, and then they they found a Mexican cast, Mexican director, and they made it. Uh, I I I think I think it's a cool kind of exploitation film, but in, in it's really uh, aimed at the Hispanic market. And uh, but uh, no, this is, that was um, something else. Um, but no, this is something I just wrote, and I, I just got an actor uh, who wants to do it, who can get it financed, and so I, I think I'll finally, uh, you know, I, I wrote a book about about spirituality in films when I was in um, college and uh, grad school. It's yeah, and and I'm going to revise that book for the 50th anniversary of it. Uh, UCAL Press is going to put out a new version. That's a couple of years away. But uh, in thinking about that, I said, you know, uh, I had always said to myself, I like these kind of films, but I would never make one myself. I'm, I, I, I like action too much. I like psychological realism too much. And, uh, and then I finally thought, well, why don't you, you know, try to write one and see what happens. And, and it came very, very quickly. And it came in. No, it was very, very good. As soon as I said, I'm going to write a script, that has no commercial potential whatsoever. Of course, it, it, it turned out that, you know, everybody likes it. You know, it's just like Taxi Driver. You know, when I wrote that, I, I wasn't writing that for, with any commercial potential at all either. I only get screwed up when I try <laughs> when I try to write something that I think is going to make money. <laughs> yeah, I love Transcendental Style in Film, and it is a fantastic book, and I can't wait to read the updates. Yeah, it's going to take quite a while because there's a, there's a lot of movies to see, and they're all long and slow. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, hey, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a, a real pleasure talking to you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. All right, Mike. Take care.
we are back and we are talking about Blue Collar. Now, Maitland, one of the reasons why we asked you to be our guest co-host, well, we love you, first of all. But second of all, you have a really close connection with this film. You actually did the audio commentary with Mr. Schrader. What was that experience like for you? It was a very enjoyable experience in that he's a filmmaker whom I admired enormously. At that time, he was not the absolute easiest person to do a commentary with, and I think that one of the reasons I was asked to do it was because it became pretty clear that he wasn't going to be somebody who could talk all the way through a commentary by himself, That not that he couldn't, but that it it would not be his inclination, so... They wanted somebody there to be asking questions that were specific to what we were seeing on screen and get him to answer them. Specifically, I, I, I was um, told that I would be good to, I, I would be a good person to speak with him because I could talk that intellectual stuff with him. Huh. So there you go. I, and he is clearly not only extremely intelligent, but also extremely well educated and extremely thoughtful. Uh, when you look at some of his films, it, it's hard to imagine that he's also the author of transcendental style in film, uh, Ozu Dryer Bresson. It, it doesn't really seem to jibe with, let's say, a film like Blue Collar. And yet, I think that there is actually a, a very heavy spiritual component to a movie like Blue Collar, because it's not just about how physically difficult, uh, how economically difficult, the life of somebody working on the line is. It's about the spiritual aspect of it. And in this case, it is not a transcendental kind of spirit. It's a soul-crushing spirit. But Schrader has always been extremely concerned with the spiritual. Rob, what are some of your favorite uh, Schrader films, either him as director or him as writer? Taxi Driver comes to mind, obviously. Uh, I've always loved Last Temptation of Christ, which he was part of the adaptation on and that. Even autofocus, which I know was kind of, um, for some people, a little iffy. I've heard some back-and-forth reviews on that, but I, I really like that as well. To me, he's one of these guys who, like Maitland was saying, I mean, he brings this element of his background, of his, of his upbringing uh, in a certain way to it, much the way that I think that um, even if Martin Scorsese, who he's worked with, has done secular film still brings parts of his Catholicism because Schrader was raised rather conservative on the west side of Michigan. And when I lived in Grand Rapids and I was around a lot of those folks, I started to understand exactly where some of that stuff came from for his background in terms of interacting with the the, the Calvinists, and um, including a film that he actually did out there, uh, which was uh, Hardcore. I love hardcore. I think it's a great movie. I think Mishima is a great movie. I love cat people. So, and I think Light Sleeper is actually a really powerful movie as well. And Affliction, also. And those are really, really strong movies. And all of them are—they're all gut punches in one way or another. Yeah, I remember seeing Affliction in the theater when it came out. I think it was actually working at the theater when it came out, and I was like just completely blown away because it had been a while since I had seen James Colburn in a really good role where, you know, he'd been playing like a lot of Westerns and a lot of bit parts, but just amazing. And then Nick Nolte in there as well. Oh, the pair of them are phenomenal in that film. I even like Comfort of Strangers, which is a movie that a lot of people don't care for. I think they find it very stylized and, and kind of cold. But again, there's, there's an undercurrent in that movie that I think is very disturbing. 
and very effective. I also really like Light Sleeper. I managed to catch that one kind of by accident um, when it was playing at a theater in Ann Arbor. Really, really has stuck with me over all these years. And just, man, top-notch performances. uh, The Willem Dafoe. And Willem Dafoe doesn't get enough credit for all the roles that he's done working with Schrader. I mean, we we already mentioned Last Temptation of Christ, which also brings uh, Harvey Keitel back to the table, which is great. But yeah, he uh, uh, Schrader has done some really interesting work over the years, like the Mosquito Coast. And I also agree, I think Cat People's got a lot of stuff to offer. It's a strange film, but it is infinitely fascinating to me. It is one that I can watch over and over again and I don't know if I should be enjoying it as much as I do but I definitely do and then things like I mean god he co-wrote Rolling Thunder which is to me one of the best revenge films and it's got that great low boil going on again I talked about how that that's there in Blue Collar and of course we get that so much with Taxi Driver but again, with Rolling Thunder, that whole idea of things building and building and building to this amazing opera of violence at the end, just that kind of stuff warms my heart. And I really was happy about that. And then I finally saw Obsession recently, the Brian De Palma film, which I had never seen before. And that really blew my socks off. I have to admit to not loving Obsession. I admire it, but I, I don't love it. I found it interesting to see, because you know how... De Palma will play with kind of the same ideas over the years and to see something like Obsession and then to see something like Raising Cain, it seemed like there were so many echoes of Obsession in Raising Cain and I prefer Obsession over Raising Cain I think, and then for me I kind of was seeing just little touches of uh, Don't Look Now in it, which was interesting for me, because normally, you know, you go into a De Palma film, you're expecting some riffs on Hitchcock, but this was interesting that he seemed to be kind of cribbing from Rogue in that one. And anybody who cribs from Rogue is cribbing from the best. So. <laughs> it's interesting that you brought up, um, as a fugitive from Chain Gang, we talk about sort of work in film that isn't, like, overly stylized in a way. What other films can you think of that maybe meet the same kind of idea as what you see in Blue Collar, just people kind of going through the job? You mean like office space? Yeah, I guess so. That actually is a hard question. There are fewer examples, I think, of that than one might think, given what an enormous component of almost everyone's life work is. I guess it's that whole thing that people go to the theater to escape their problems, not to be confronted by them, I guess. (laughs) Well, that's certainly part of it, and Certainly, many of the problems that people have on a day-in, day-out basis are directly related to work, whether it's a bad boss or a company that's been sold or a transfer to a department that you don't particularly want to work in, but you also don't want to be unemployed or you can't stand your coworkers. And, you know, work is, work is stressful, and yet we all have to do it, except those of us who are born wealthy, and I don't think that's any of us. You know, we, cover, we talked about the devil in Miss Jones a few uh, years ago. And there's uh, the movie that I was kind of joking around that it was not the devil and Miss Jones where uh, the porn film got its name from. um, But as a parody kind of thing, the devil and Miss Jones is an interesting work story, I have to say. And it's very much about a uh, life at a department store. And there's uh, 
it kind of plays into this whole idea of bad bosses and it's one of these movies where you know it's kind of like a, like a Sullivan's Travels kind of thing but it's where a boss of a department store goes undercover it's years before undercover bosses goes undercover and becomes a worker in one of the departments and sees what it's like to be there on a day-to-day basis and I have to really recommend that film. It's a great, great movie. And it really does kind of talk about the whole idea of your boss's expectations versus the reality of the job. You know, if you were to come in here and, and try to do what I do on a daily basis, I don't necessarily think you could handle it. So it, I do have to say that that is a great work movie. I'm also trying to think of a specific film, but I think of Betty Davis in the 30s as somebody who made a number of movies about work, about being a shop girl or being a secretary. Uh, they were quite surprisingly cold in their assessment of what it was like to do that kind of work, work that wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't manual labor and it wasn't the most demeaning kind of work you could do, but was also soul-destroying work. She could do that kind of stuff so well. Like, I know this doesn't fit with that, but just thinking of how put down she was in something like a now voyager she could do that kind of suppressed or oppressed person so well and that is a real skill and it's particularly a skill when you're talking about white collar work because certainly all those guys in blue collar would say oh really you have a tough job how about you come down and work where i work white collar work looks much better but white collar work certainly has its own discontents, and it can be can be hard on you. Let's say. Yeah, it can be a, a definite emotional rigor as opposed to a physical rigor. I mean, I remember one of the things my dad saying to me, who he worked in a factory. He said, uh, "Get a job, work with your head, not with your hands." So. Which only means you get it all in the head, not on your head. <laughs> yeah. Well, he had like really thick calluses and lots of grease under his fingernails, so he he didn't think that was necessarily a great way to earn your living. Yeah, my stepdad had really bad knees, and the calluses on his feet were like, I don't know, he looked like a hobbit foot kind of thing because he just was on his feet all freaking day long, working under cars, you know, having them up on the lift and doing the mechanical stuff. And that's one reason why I don't know anything about cars is because he kept me out of the garage, you know, just didn't want me to follow in his path when it came to that stuff. And, you know, the corollary of that for women would be jobs like being a hairdresser or working as a shop girl, where, again, you were on your feet all day. You were working with your hands. You were exposed to poisonous dyes. Uh, you know, they were ugly jobs when you were doing them day in and day out. They maybe did not callous your feet like a hobbit and make your hands insensible so that you could pick up an iron with them. But they were, they're physically tough jobs. Waitressing. Waitressing is a tough job. Of course, as you're saying that, I'm thinking of Norma Ray, which was another great union film of the 1970s, too. You're right. That is a great union film. Albeit one with a happier ending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I thought you were going to say with the talk about waitresses, uh, Harvey Keitel once again. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. These people bust their ass. This is a hard job. So it's working at McDonald's, but you don't feel the need to tip them, do you? Well, why not? They're serving you food. But no, society says, don't tip these guys over here, but tip these guys over here. That's bullshit. Waitressing is the number one occupation for female non-college graduates in this country. It's the one job basically any woman can get and make a living on. The reason is because of their tips. Fuck all that. 
Oh, okay. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, I bet that one flew right over my head as well. <laughs> <laughs> I got two words for you. Learn to fucking type. That's what it is. <laughs> But the uh, the other thing that I was thinking about that is in here as well, obviously, is racial politics in America. And was just wondering if you see any other films that sort of bring up the same thing. I mean, we did talk a little bit about Bone in that film. And um, the other one that I was kind of thinking about, and I think it kind of fails in some ways. And to be honest, I haven't seen it since it was in the theater. I don't know what that says. Is uh, I think I brought it up on another film, uh, another show before, is White Man's Burden where basically everything is in reverse, where it's the, the white people who are living in the ghettos and it's the black folks who are in charge, played by Harry, Harry Belafonte, and then obviously uh, it was uh, John Travolta, sort of the poor white guy, and sort of this role reversal kind of thing. I remember thinking, yeah, a little bit obvious, right? <laughs> Just a little. Just a touch, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of taking the idea and going to almost absurd lengths with some of it. But, you know, we've talked about things like CSA, the Confederate States of America, which kind of does, well, it doesn't take things and flip them on their head. It just makes things as they are now far worse to kind of point out how bad things still are in some instances. You know, as you guys were talking about uh, this, the end of Blue Collar and when uh, Keitel drops that end bomb, my mind immediately went to the killing. And for me, one of the most painful moments of the killing is that scene with Timothy Carey and the guy who's like taking care of the cars at the track and they're striking up this kind of conversation and really kind of, you know, uh, becoming friends here. And then at one point, Timothy Carey basically has to take out this rifle and kill a horse and the black guy keeps coming up and he's trying to be friendly and all this kind of stuff. And, and Carey's trying to get him away. And after all of these attempts, the only thing that he can think of is to call him a nigger. And that's when the guy just changes completely and you just feel your heart just pours out for this guy. And you also feel a little bad for Timothy Carey at the same time because you know he doesn't want to do it. But he's in this position where he has to get this guy away from the car so he can fulfill his part of this elaborate heist. So maybe it was the heist, maybe it was the N-word, I'm not sure what it was, but that was what came to my mind when we were talking about that. Well, I think the other thing that's coming to mind here is the fact is it's still extremely difficult to talk about race in America. I think one of the reasons that people dislike Spike Lee so much is because he keeps on putting that conversation on the table. That's a conversation he will not back away from. And he can certainly be strident, he can certainly be really irritating, but the fact is that he is a filmmaker who has been consistently dealing with a topic that makes most white people so uncomfortable that they don't even want to hear it for a long time. And I have to give him points for that. It also makes me think of the, the sentence that I loathe most coming from anybody, which is, I don't see race. Because you know what? You do. I know that many of the people who say that are saying I do not see people's skin color and automatically judge them according to a set of stereotypes associated with their skin color. And that is more likely to be true than what they're actually saying, which is I don't see race because everybody sees race. And it, it colors, if you will, 
a great deal of American culture and the way in which different Americans interact with one another. Just does. And then, as you brought up, Mike, CSA, which we also did on the show, the other one that I saw, like I, I tell the story, it was my first time with the VCR when my dad got it when I was nine. It was the double feature of Clockwork Orange and Watermelon Man. And <laughs> Watermelon Man has always been seared into my head. And I know it's a little dated uh, at times, but I still think that he brings up a lot of really great points in there. Oh, that's absolutely true. I, I saw Watermelon Man actually for the first time in years, maybe last year, early last year. And it is extremely pointed in a lot of ways. Putney Swope is extremely pointed in a lot of ways. Uh, yes, they are films of their time, but the fact is that the issues they're addressing are not films that are, in, are not issues that are in the past. Yeah, and some of them are still as hard-hitting today as they were. And I think what separates those for me versus something from a Spike Lee is that they deal with their topic with humor. Sometimes it's dark humor. Sometimes it's very dark humor, but there is that element to it. And I think just personally, I'm able to process things a little bit easier that way. I'm able to take the medicine with a spoonful of sugar a little bit easier than, you know, like a do the right thing kind of whatever. So I... But it could just be that I'm, you know, uh, afraid to come out and, and look at the truth. You know, I am. I live in denial about a lot of things. I, I still think that the last action hero is a horrible movie. I'll back you on that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Mr. Jerry Cornelius, a legend in his own lifetime. Right on time, Mr. Cornelius. Mrs. Lyles. My colleagues, uh, Dr. Powis, Dr. Lucas, and this is Miss Brunner. Your motives in helping us seem a trifle obscure. How about revenge? That do? Revenge? Ah, yes, grudges, that sort of thing. A very sound motive. There must be a better way than this, sure. Get down! Over there! Don't look at the line! Come on, move! Keep your heads down. Wait for me. Catherine. When you come back in about that door, Jerry. Throw in your needle and come out with your veins clear, Frank. Like this. How you get on with it, Dr. Baxter? Boys will be boys after all. Do you know Rome at all? We've met. I love it. Doesn't seem the same without the Vatican, though, does it? You miserable son of a... Now let that be a lesson to you. Ah, Mr. Cornelius. 
What a bewildering, topsy-turvy world this is. A very tasty world. That's right. Next week, we're talking about the final program. It is not the final program of the show. Some people thought that it was, and they were thanking us for that. But no, it's actually the name of the movie that we are dealing with, the final program. We're going to be talking with Michael Moorcock, the author of the book on which that movie is based. And hopefully, I think we're going to be talking to Sarah Douglas about that one, maybe. And she was this was her film debut, and we'll be joined by Eric Cohen of The Cinephiles. Before we go, I want to thank our special guest, Paul Schrader. Thank you for coming on the show. And our guest co-host, Maitland McDonough. So, Maitland, what is the latest with you, ma'am? The latest with me is I am uh, finishing up a book that I'm publishing. It's a reprint of uh, a gay adult novel from the 70s called A Gay Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum uh, about a gaycation entrepreneur who puts together a set of fake Olympic games in Mexico figuring what could be a better draw than a bunch of naked athletes. Uh, and then things take a surprising turn. So it's quite funny, very, very sharp book uh, in the way that a lot of gay adult novels of the 70s were. You have been doing this for a little while now, and I know that you've brought to light some really interesting books. And always surprising, whenever you describe these to me, it's always just kind of a shocker that there were these adult-themed books that had so much more going on to them than just sex. What have been some of the favorite ones that you've discovered? There's a novel that I hope that I can do next, actually, called Boys Behind Bars. It is a really great guys in prison movie. My first, like, one of my first books was a, a thriller called Maneater, which in many ways, there's a lot of resemblances to Red Dragon. Kind of, kind of fascinating, actually, the many ways in which it resembles it, except that the killer who is killing gay men with a set of steel teeth is prowling a, a gay underworld rather than another kind of underworld. Uh, that's a really, really terrific book. And uh, I just did one called Gay Vampire, and another, uh, actually, Gay Vampire, which is kind of a spin on Dark Shadows, a lot of fun, and uh, another called Vampire's Kiss that has a very funny kind of Renfield spin on it, but is set in uh, 1970s suburbia. It's a real kick. And all of them are, are, yeah, they are interesting books because they're dealing essentially with a side of gay culture that you didn't get in literary novels. I mean, none of these books is The City and the Pillar, for better and for worse. Uh, Most of them are not as well written as City and the Pillar. On the other hand, most of them don't end with, yeah, either rape or suicide, depending on which version of Sitting in the Pillar you've read. So they're kind of fun, and they're interesting, and they contain social insights that you might not expect from books that you had to buy in a dirty bookstore. Well, you know, as, as I tell people, uh, sometimes it's the, the more seedier elements that become the delivery vehicle for uh, interesting social commentary. Well, isn't that one of the reasons that we all like horror movies? And horror movies from most of their uh, their existence were disreputable movies. And yet you look at something like David Cronenberg's They Came From Within, and that's a really interesting movie, very socially interesting movie that also has things that come up through the drain and go unspeakable places. <laughs> very true. For those who want to get more information on the books, uh, where can they pick them up and follow the latest? You can pick them up on Amazon. I, I suggest just... Be- so entering my name on Amazon, and you will see them all there. 
Uh, I do have a site called 120 Days Books. I have a 120 Days Books Facebook page, which contains links to all of them. Uh, 120 Days Books, of course, being named after. 120 Days of Sodom. You bet, because how could I resist? And in fact, my very first website, which I started writing about these books, was called 120 Days of Sodomy, because sometimes it just doesn't pay to be subtle. (laughs) (laughs) And then people would say, really, only four months of sodomy? That's all I'm going to get? That's it, but they're going to be uh, jam-packed, if you will. <laughs> well, there you go. And of course, we'll share those links over at our website, projection booth.com. Make sure to click all those, leave us some feedback. Um, also, go over to iTunes if you haven't yet and leave us a review. And remember, if you haven't paid yet, your union dues are due. Oh, 
Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.